Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Yeah, having my head shoved into the uh, steps of the Ulster Bank in Ranla, called but of a gun put into the back of your skull, that's a moment where you go, okay, yeah, I think this one's up. How does a high-flying academic become one of Ireland's most prolific bank robbers? What I would see is the most important part of this still lies open. I'm Not Here to Hurt You, a brand new series from the award-winning team behind the Indo Daily. That November day, that's where it all, all begins. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Wecker, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. Let's talk about tech valuations because we're trying to figure out whether they're out of control at the moment. This month, $150 million was raised by Peter Foley's Let's Get Checked, giving the five-year-old firm a valuation of over a billion dollars. Last month, 100 million euro was raised by just two uh, Irish startups, Wayfair and Qualio. The month before that was a handful of others, including Payslip. So it means that this year, well over a billion euro, I'd say, is going to be raised by Irish tech and pharma firms in the second year of a pandemic. So what's going on with these eye-watering sums? Uh, Brian Caulfield, you're a seasoned investor, one of the uh, people many people look to on big questions like this. Um can I ask you, A, what's going on, and B, is there pressure now f- on higher valuations and funding rounds? So I think what's going on is really pretty simple. We've been through an extended period of extremely low interest rates, and as a result of that, you know, any asset that delivers a significant return has has seen its value inflate pretty significantly. So I think that's the kind of the fundamental underlying uh, principle. There's a lot of money chasing, you know, yield and return of some description. Um, I think the other thing that has been a big factor is effectively the globalization of the venture capital markets, especially at the later stage. Uh, And that's partly driven by uh, the US VC firms in particular, effectively looking for kind of price arbitrage. They're, They're coming to Europe because they see European assets as being actually better priced than similar assets in the US. So I think those are the, the kind of the key underlying factors. Mm. John Isle, uh, Deputy Business Editor with uh, the Irish Independent, from a wider financial perspective, 
well, how do you view this situation? Is there any suspicion that we there's any element of a frothy boom, for example, uh, at the moment? I think there's a couple of elements here, Adrian. Um, when somebody decides that they're going to pay a certain amount of money for a for a, a named percentage of a, a company, you get a notional valuation out of that, right? It's sort of simple mathematics. If I say I'm going to pay you five million euro for five percent of your company, the notional valuation is a hundred million for that company. What happens though, when you're talking about private illiquid companies with a small number of shareholders, uh, is, is that you don't necessarily get the same kind of price discovery you would get on a public market where you have hundreds, thousands, even millions of potential shareholders who are, you know, bidding for bidding for the stock and you get a, a, a kind of a more, um, a more accurate, let's say, price discovery, although it has to be said, you have overvaluations on the stock market as well. The other element to this, though, I think, is that there's a certain amount of marketing that goes on with valuations. So you have to remember, and, and you know, Brian will, will, will be able to talk about this, I think, is that when somebody is an early stage investor in a company, their ultimate end goal is to sell that stake on to a later investor, hopefully for a higher price. So the more that you can sort of give a notional, a high notional valuation to a company, the more potentially attractive that becomes to the next round of investors and the round after that and the round after that. So there is a certain amount of signaling that goes on, I think, with these valuations um, that isn't necessarily saying, you know, fundamentally, this is what the company is worth because they're not always based on things like cash flow or earnings or revenue or even anything like that. They're often very uh, sort of abstract and, and about the potential of these companies to earn, which is especially true, I think, in the tech sector or life sciences, where it's not always clear, let's say, the scope of the market, um, the appetite for the product they're selling, etc. So I think it's two things. It's, it's one, obviously, people are willing to put their money down, and that tells you something about the value of a company. But there's another aspect of it, which is, which is more about marketing, signaling, and communications uh, about the company. Just to be clear, you're attributing, I presume, a laudable and legitimate uh, marketing motive there. You're not suggesting that there are elements of a pyramid scheme here, that by saying something is worth loads of money and you pass it on to the next investor and, and there's a kind of a, a pyramid going on. No, obviously not, because ultimately any valuation has to be backed up by earnings, right? It's not just about a pig and a poke. And we've seen, we've seen companies with with big initial valuations, uh, who went on to you know to earn tons of money. Google is a great example of that. But then there have been other companies, as you're aware of, like let's say WeWork or even Deliveroo. These are companies that might or might not make a lot of money in the future, but whose valuations got punctured somewhere along the way. What what people thought they were once worth, it turns out when the rubber meets the road, uh, later investors haven't been willing to pony up for that. Mm. Brian, is it possible to, from to to try to pinpoint where all of this has come from. You said that you know, low interest rates and people are looking for places to put their cash. But there's also another side to it that maybe that Ireland is benefiting to some degree from decades of ecosystem building here, for example. I mean, I remember back in the era of the Ionas and Chris Horns and Henri O'Toole's and all the way through to the Collison brothers now, we're seeing that Stripe is going to return to Dublin, create over a thousand jobs here. The biggest industrial return I can remember from a couple of Irish founders that went abroad uh, and uh, came back to Ireland. I mean, is is there anything to that? 
I think there is. I mean, if if I think of my own career, I started my first business in 1992. And, you know, at the time, people thought starting your own software company was an, an act of absolute lunacy. And, you know, there really weren't very many role models out there who, who had done it previously. Uh, Tony killed off, perhaps, um, you know, w- w- one or two others. Um, and I think that situation has changed dramatically. We now have people out there who've sold, you know, not one or two, but maybe three, uh, three different businesses. Mm. I see, see Charles Bibby uh, from Pointy there, for example, uh, sold uh, Pointy uh, for over 100 million last year. It was the second company he had sold to Google in a few years. Yeah, yeah uh, uh, absolutely. So and, and that's and that's becoming, you know, if you like, not not unremarkable of course it is remarkable but it's becoming much much more common um i mean i think the number of people involved in the ecosystem has expanded dramatically we we estimate that kind of uh start up and scale up tech businesses in ireland now employ about forty-seven thousand people so that's a pretty pretty material base of people and uh, it does take time for an ecosystem to develop you know you need you need to be build in particular the niche commercial skill sets i i think we've still got a ways to go there but we're in an infinitely better place than we were even 10 years ago, I would say. was It's the first time I can remember in my lifetime, the last couple of years, where your caricature, stereotypical middle-class mother can say absolutely honestly that she's proud that her son or daughter is going to study computer science or engineering as much as she would have medicine or law. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the I, I certainly grew up in an era where, you know, joining the bank, <laughs> um, you know, joining the civil service, or going into what were described as the professions, you know, law, mm. medicine, whatever, that was kind of viewed as as being the kind of the A plus ultra from a, a career perspective. And I think that certainly changed. There's an increasingly strong recognition that if you want longevity in your career, uh, you know, science, technology and engineering is the place to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, from your perspective, where do you see things going from here? Do you think that... Uh, with the digitization and the online commerce that have become the hallmark of the last 18 months, are we going to see, from a financial industry perspective, would you expect to see um, the kind of funding rounds, the kind of valuations, the transformation in business that we've seen? Do you think that's going to continue? It's interesting. When we talk about tech valuations, I think there's a certain amount of um, a kind of a a fear that that people have, let's say from outside the industry, about what these valuations mean. I think they look at them and and maybe they think back to the kind of dot-com era where you had some spectacular blow-ups of uh, companies that never lived up to their billing. Um, And there's the issue of, you know, digital products and services are immaterial. You know, they don't have a 
they're not tangible. You can't touch them. It's it's harder for it's harder to understand what they're really worth. And well, you a, see it in your monthly subscription. I don't know about you, but like <laughs> my, in the last three years, my monthly subs have gone from around. 55 euro to about 165 euro mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about my mobile bill or my broadband bill and and i'm talking about netflix amazon and disney plus and mubu you know and and a whole load of of other things so like maybe this is just reflecting the way that we ourselves are, are now living and, and the change our uh, own lives. hundred percent. Yeah. And things are, you know, dematerialized to a large extent. And we see that in the entire global economy is dematerialized. That's what the whole global minimum tax debate is about. It's an attempt almost to rematerialize global trade and say, no, 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 this trade exists in in one place more than it exists in another place. It's a kind of a reaction against this sort of this abstraction of value. Um, so, I mean, if you look back at 2020, it was actually an extraordinary year in capital markets. You had, in the US especially, more IPOs in the previous year. And this is not notwithstanding um, COVID-19. You had a lot of companies going to markets, raising equity. There's a lot of appetite out there. Some of that is, you know, for the reasons that, that Brian describes, there's a lot of liquidity out there. Central banks are really standing behind the markets right now, and they're going to do so for a couple of years to come at the very least. So if you're an optimist, you look at this and you say, we could be on the verge you know, of an extraordinary, um, long-lasting, sustainable boom that is driven in part by uh, stimulus policies, both from you know, the fiscal government stimulus policies and central bank support, but also by this incredible development of new technologies, not just in um, digital tech, but also in, you know, biotech, life sciences, all of these things, uh, like incredible things are happening. I mean, we've been consumed, say, with the downside of a COVID-19 crisis, but just look at what has happened in terms of vaccination on such a rapid timescale. These extraordinary new products have come to market, um, which are going to potentially change the way we all live. So I, I hear you can vaccinate people now by 5G as well. Is that, is that true? I heard <laughs> yes, that. Yeah. Is that true? <laughs> exactly. We can just get five 5G vaccinations now. It's the best way, really. Mm. Um, you just have to watch out for the for the magnetization of your skull. You know, that's that, right. that, that's that's a that's a side the little, effect. The little Soros <laughs> tattoo that, inside. Yeah, yeah. I've already, I've already got one of those. Yeah. So, like, so I'm giving the optimist view, right? So the pessimist view is, well, you know, this is all smoke and mirrors. It's it's vapor because it's propped up by central banks and extraordinary amounts of liquidity that's been pumped into the system, it can't possibly last. Eventually, these valuations will come down to earth. It's just going to take one correction to puncture the balloon. Everyone's confidence will will then dissipate. Now, I've heard that a version of that literally for years, probably since 2015, 2016, people have been saying that about, about uh, capital markets. And, you know, we had an extraordinary correction last year at the beginning of the pandemic. And eventually people regained their bearings. They took a look at um, what they regarded as the fundamental values of the companies they were investing in, and the, the market rose again. And, you know, here we are at all-time highs again. Um, I don't want to be the guy kind of arguing against uh, the wisdom of wisdom of the crowd there. I mean, obviously, you have to cast a skeptical eye on it from time to time. But, um, you know, mm. for the time being, these high valuations are, are reflecting something. They're reflecting confidence. They're reflecting... Um, you know, new products, new technologies, and a, and a new future. I mean, look, that, that's that's I, that's never a bad thing. One one of the issues I uh, always had with um, Colin McCarthy, and I I, I said it to him. He, he used to a, a lot of his columns in the Sindo, which 
are very, it's often very compelling, but there was a strain and a thread through them that poo-pooed new ideas an, an awful lot of the time, but would kind of rubbish um, a suggestion that a certain new technology or a new way of doing things was was a laudable uh, you know, place to, to put money in. But what you're describing is surely the best of our aspirations industry to actually move things forward, have new ideas, do new things. Yeah. And look, some of them aren't going to turn out and people are going to lose money on bad investments. I mean, you know, when we talk about these unicorn valuations, we're not talking about the nine other companies out of the 10, which just never really made it out of the traps and the venture capitalists lost all their money. 99, right? not yeah, nine, 99, 99, whatever, whatever the ratio is. So there's a reason they're called unicorns, right? And it's not merely because they are rare among other valuable companies. It's because they're rare among all companies. John, you know that you, unicorns don't <laughs> exist. They're not rare. They don't exist. I hate to break it to you. It's, um, it's the, the unicorn Pegasus is the one that doesn't exist. Right. It's the decacorn, right. <laughs> Brian, what's your view on all of this? So I, I, I actually completely agree with John. You know, you can look at the valuations and say, oh, you know, they're not based on fundamentals, etc. But uh, it's very, very difficult to see what's going to change the current momentum. You know, if you look at what governments want at the moment in a perfect world, they'd like to have uh, low interest rates so they can service their own debt and a bit of inflation to gradually inflate away the debt. So when you see central banks uh, around the world lined up behind that it's it's difficult to see where the sort of the shock to the system is going to come from you know mm. and the other thing that i think is really important we're, we're really not in a situation similar to the dot-com bubble here you know you, you're looking at companies like uipath with you know valuations of circa 40 billion but UiPath has an incredibly profitable business model at the unit economics level, fantastic gross margins. It's growing its business at, you know, not far off doubling each year. You know, that's a, a, a pretty compelling, and I'm not, by the way, giving investment advice here, but that, that's, yeah. that's a genuinely compelling business model. Um, and as, as John said, you know, we've got a couple of, if you like, emerging platform technologies that have the potential, you know, to, to drive this for several more years. I mean, I, I'm thinking, for example, of artificial intelligence, uh, which, which, which has the potential across a very, very wide range of application areas to have an absolutely enormous impact. You know, the digitization mm. of healthcare. I mean, we, we've we've seen here in Ireland quite how behind the curve the digitization of healthcare in Ireland is is right now. That's a problem, and, and it's a problem that's been exposed recently. But it's also an enormous opportunity. So. You know, I, I, I can pretty much agree with John's analysis on, on this. I, I don't see a short-term shock to the system that's going to dramatically reduce tech valuations. Yeah, just very finally, um, 
Brian, one of the common themes I've seen with some of the startups raising large rounds in Ireland is just how frequently they now go directly uh, outside Ireland for venture capital, mostly to the US, it has to be said. And uh, is that just a function of the amount, the quantum that they're looking for? Or is there anything to um, you know, just the US industry, for example, being just much more mature and more accommodating for bigger ambitions and bigger aspirational projects? Well, the uh, it is largely a function of quantum in the sense that if you want to raise, I would say, 20 million and above, uh, you're not going to find that capital in the Irish market from the kind of major VC players in the Irish market, you know, the, the, uh, Ireland's a small market, so the reality is we're unlikely to have very, very, very large domestic venture capital investments. We're, we're also seeing this huge globalization of capital markets, which, which, is, uh, which is another driver. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the European venture capital market versus the U.S. venture capital market, we're still massively undersupplied with capital in Europe relative to the U.S., which is exactly why so many of the big U.S. investors are showing up here in, in, in Europe now. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a less competitive market, actually. And it's also why it's relatively easy for an Irish company raising big money to go to the US and do it there. Mm. Jens, there's an awful lot more I'd love to ask you about. There's a few uh, rabbit holes I'd really like to go down on this, but unfortunately time has uh, caught up with us. So um, uh, Brian Caulfield, Venture Partner with Draper Esprit, thank you very much uh, again for joining us. And also to John Isle, Deputy Business Editor of the Irish Independent. Uh, from me, Adrian Weckler, the Tech Editor of the Irish Sunday Independent, we'll be here exactly the same time next week. So thanks again for listening and watching and bye-bye. 